0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Rogue Grace on this Friday afternoon. Thank God it's finished. The work of the cross has completed your righteousness, mine too, so that now we are ever as we will ever be righteous in the sight of God. It's good to know that. The one that counts, whose opinion matters, as far as he is concerned, you are as righteous as you possibly could be. There's nothing more to do that you could add, that you could um, improve upon, except to believe. In the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, there are two kinds of righteousness, of course, but the first kind, self righteousness, gives me the credit and me the glory. But the second kind, the righteousness of Jesus counted to me, gives jesus the credit and jesus the glory and along with that it's that second righteousness that can't be affected tainted that can't be changed whatsoever so that's good news right that's good news to take in with you into this weekend We're going to continue our study in the book of Hebrews this afternoon, and we find ourselves in Hebrews in chapter chapter 3, verse 7 to verse 11 this afternoon. So if you're following along or you have a Bible in your car or by your office cubicle or wherever you might be, maybe you want to turn there. And I'll give you a chance to do so as we play this song, and we'll be right back.
1: each other
0: Welcome back. Let's dive into the text here of the book of Hebrews, written about five years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which would occur in 65 AD. So about 40 years or so after the public ministry of Jesus and While the book of Hebrews was first circulated, the temple was still standing. And not only that, it had been fully refurbished. Uh, A project that took decades, to say the least. It took, um, I want to say somewhere in proximity of 80 years. I'll have to get back to you on that. But it was a long process. You thought your remodel took a long time for your kitchen. It probably did. It felt like 80 years. But the temple literally did. King Herod wanted to um, exalt the, the, the temple and his own legacy in so doing. And so it wasn't even finished by the time he had died. By the time Hebrews was written, it probably was finished. (laughs) In fact, it barely was finished when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Just when they finally got done refurbishing it and reframing the whole structure into one of the marvels of the ancient world of the first century. Then the Romans come down, led under General Titus, and just as Jesus told the disciples would happen, not one stone remained upon another stone, just as he had said 40 years after his own life and death on the cross. So when this book is written, though, that had not yet quite had happened And there was a tendency for the Christians that this letter or book was addressed to to drift back under the tenets and the regulations of the old covenant, which would be of the temple. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Some that were probably more relevant to that time, then now, and some that will always be. The book of Hebrews uses terms such as drifting and holding fast and uh, various phrases that are used in keeping your feet on the ground and not drifting back or wandering away. It uses various terms throughout the book because there is a human tendency to drift. Now, in this occasion, it's not drifting into hedonism or into um, lasciviousness, if I can use that old King James word, where one has a license to do whatever they want. But this kind of drifting goes back into a mentality of, I still believe in Jesus and I'm grateful for the finished work of the cross. And I want to take that with me as I go back into the temple. And I think that maybe one of the breaking points, the final straw was when these Christians would go back with their sin and animal sacrifices. Then that was enough. And the writer's going to point that out, why that is in a couple chapters. But he wants us, the writer of Hebrews, to be aware of drifting to not let it happen so subtly that you don't even know where you are anymore before you know it. And the drifting tends to go in this kind of direction. And that would be, well, I am so appreciative of the work and the cross of Jesus Christ. I I know that that saved me and nothing else could. But I also want to demonstrate that I'm, a, I'm a, 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 um, an authentic Christian. Um, I'm the real deal, so to speak. I'm valid. And that works for a while. A month, a year, five years. But not much longer than that, usually. And I have seen many occasions, the people you thought would, were least likely to drift away and to ultimately just fall out of the picture altogether did. They're nowhere to be found in the Christian community. They're nowhere to be found on the radar of the Christian faith. And it's almost as though they shined the brightest and then they blew out the biggest. And the reason I think might be if I look at Hebrews that they began to want to even so subtly drifting demonstrate that they were valid. That their Christianity, they, they knew they were saved by grace, but then they wanted themselves to know, God to know, maybe others to know that it was so genuine to them, so real to them that they could take it to another gear. I want to take it to another gear in my life, but if I'm doing it in my own effort, then ultimately... I'm going to burn out. I'm going to implode. And so will you. Maybe sometimes it's the Christian that maybe didn't shine the brightest at first, but just day by day, year by year, understood the grace of God and not perfectly, but faithfully, with consistency, were able to walk the Christian walk they didn't drift away. They, in fact, made progress because they understood that the same way that they were born again is the same way they're kept in the kingdom of God today as it was that day. So, going back to our text here, it says in Hebrews chapter three, verse seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and of course, when it says therefore, you have to make a note of what the therefore is therefore. And the therefore is pointing back to the previous couple of verses, of course. And those couple of verses speak of how as great as Moses was as a man and as a servant of the Lord, he was faithful in God's house. And yet Jesus Christ is the son of God, not simply or merely the servant of God. And Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Moses was faithful in the house and what he brought into the house of God is invaluable. The old covenant, as we would call it, the covenant of of God with Moses, the Mosaic covenant with the perfection of the Ten Commandments and the wisdom of the Mosaic ordinances 613 in total. Um, It had a huge part to play. First of all, in preserving God's people, even though they far from kept it perfectly, it definitely kept them preserved in those desert years, those 40 years, for many reasons. But also, as we look back on it now, we can see... That it goes to show us that even if we wanted to, we can't meet God on the basis of Him doing His part and we doing ours. It doesn't work. It can't work, not indefinitely. But He brought about those things into the house. However, Jesus is over the house as a son, He's the owner of the house. And who is the house? You and I. So that's the verses before. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes from Psalms, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So he's talking now of a third principle that is so important to the Jewish people before the time of Jesus that's so integral to what we call the Old Covenant. The first would be, he addresses this in chapters 1 and 2, the angels. And then he makes the case, biblically, that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then, as we saw, as we just read, Moses, he would be the key figure, he would be the national hero, so to speak, of the old covenant. And yet he just stated to us why Jesus is even greater than Moses. And now the third principle or the third segment of the old covenant that would have been so important to the people of Israel, and that would be the promised land, the land of Canaan. It's the land that is called the land of rest here in our text, here in Hebrews, in Psalms, and also in the Pentateuch, when Moses himself refers to it as the land of rest. And the writer of Hebrews is going to make the case that that land of rest is much, much more than just a geographical um, coordination or location on a map. That it speaks of something much greater than just borders and territory. But because it was borders and territory, we can relate it to our everyday lives, in our spiritual lives, by looking at it as it was then. And he refers to the day of provocation or the day of testing found in Numbers chapter 13. It's when the people of Israel had come into the promised land, the precipice, the border of the land of promise. Finally, they had been delivered from Egypt. They had made the trek probably around two weeks or so, maybe three weeks from the Red Sea stopping at Sinai and then making their way up where there was the mountains to the south. And as they crossed those mountains, the land God had promised them was waiting for them. And so Moses sent in spies into that land from every tribe, to scout it out how must how would it be best for them to approach this territory and how the best um, advantages would be for them and so the spies are in the land and do the scouting and they come out of that land with a pretty amazing um, little sampling of the land, of what awaited God's people. And they have, they come out with, as you know, these clusters of grapes that just a cluster of grapes was so large. It took two of these guys to carry it, you know, on their shoulders. Pretty amazing. And the people were overwhelmed at these, these samplings of the land and the spy said, indeed, it's amazing. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. In contrast to Egypt, where they had been for 400 years, a land that they were um, constantly having to, um, if there was water, it would have to be pumped out of the ground. If there was going to be um Shelter. It was something that they had to mold and shape under the the heat of the sun. And it wouldn't just be shelter for them. They were building shelter for others as slaves. Well, in this particular land, God would say to them, I'm going to give you houses that you did not build. (laughs) And I'm going to give you wells that you don't have to pump, they will flow. That's pretty amazing. And so it's a great contrast between Egypt, where they had to make it happen, and it was still never enough, to the land of promise, Canaan, where they didn't have to make anything happen if they simply believed it would be more than enough. The promise, the problem was, as you know, on this day of provocation, they didn't believe. And one of the reasons for that was that these spies, with the exception of two, Caleb and Joshua, the other 10 brought what the Bible calls an evil report. And they said, when we saw the inhabitants of the land, how large they were, these giants, we recognized that we were grasshoppers in their sight, And we were grasshoppers in our own sight. So they had a major grasshopper complex. Seeing themselves as inferior. Unable to to possess the land. Totally impossible for them to throw out those that had been possessing that land. Because of the lack of size and the problem was is they were focused on themselves and their ability or lack thereof if they had been faithful to what God had said and had simply been focused on his ability then they would have seen right then and there the power of God on their behalf And Joshua and Caleb tried to convince the people, but the damage had been done. The evil report had already siphoned its way through the population, and the people, to the dismay of Moses, turned away and walked back down the hill, so to speak. They thought, We're grasshoppers, we'll be destroyed. And God said, in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And indeed he said, their children whom they are claiming would be destroyed are going to be the ones who actually take this land. But their parents, this generation that right now doesn't believe will be wandering in the desert for 40 years they will not enter my rest. And so now the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing can be said about any of us who take our eyes and place them on our ability or our spirituality or our faithfulness. It's going to come a time if we do that, that we'll just say, I don't have enough. And we won't, Go forward and we won't take territory and we won't see victory now what does that mean take territory and see victory speaking of victory in terms of christian growth fruitfulness the land flowing with milk and honey had all kinds of an abundance of fruit as they brought it out of the promised land just to show And because they put their eyes on themselves instead of on God, and they saw themselves as grasshoppers, the fruit that was already theirs to be taken would now not be available for them for another 40 years. And how I want to see fruitfulness in my life. I want to see growth in my life. I want to become a more loving guy, a more wise guy, you know what I mean, Uh, a more kind person. But if my eyes are on myself, I'm not going to enter into God's rest. At some point, I'm just going to call it a day. I really will, whether officially or subtly, audibly, or in the back of my mind just call it a day and I'll have so much less progress in my Christian growth. than if I do what the 12 spies were supposed to do and look at what God has for me and say, Lord, I, I don't deserve this, but it's not about me. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. It's the finished work of the cross. You see, like anything else that's so important in the Old Covenant, the land of promise, the land of Canaan speaks of the finished work of the cross. Something that is already prepared. Something that's already accomplished. All one has to do is step into it with a faith in it. The finished work and not in oneself. To step into it with faith in him, the finisher of the work and not in oneself. And in that way, you look at spiritual growth and the Christian growth that you so desire and you count it as already been done. That's what God does. And you can as well. And so can I. And it will happen in that way. Well, I feel like I'm a grasshopper. Maybe you are, but it's not about you. That's the whole point of that story on the day of provocation. And they would come back around, but it took them 40 years later. Maybe you're tired of wandering around the desert. You, you believe in the Lord. You know that the victory has already been won, that the price has been a paid and the work has been accomplished, but are you seeing that spiritual growth more and more, almost daily to the point where you are just enjoying it daily? That comes from resting in the finished work of the cross. We'll be right back.
2: Can he make sense?
0: back as we're looking at in the book of hebrews the particular day that had to do with the people of israel failing to enter into the land of promise so there they were at the precipice overlooking the land ready to go ready to take it they had been delivered from pharaoh some weeks before And now they're ready to go into the land and take what God had promised to their father Abraham and now to their ancestors and to them as well. But they didn't. Something held them back. It was the evil report of the spies who said, We're grasshoppers. There's no way. We can take these guys, these giants, out of the land. And that was simply, almost like it seems, the excuse they needed to back off. And they didn't enter into God's rest. Now, 40 years later, one of those two spies who said, we can do it. They were both still alive, the only ones out of that generation, But the one that was leading them was Joshua and they took that land and they were able to find rest in that land. So the territory of Canaan is what in the Old Testament, a land of rest in the New Testament to you and I, it's a state or a condition of rest. By rest, therefore, we don't mean simply a physical lack of activity. But it's what Jesus calls the rest for the soul. If you are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul, he said. So it's this inward rest. I like how Romans chapter 4, verse 2 states it. It's one of my favorite verses. And I'll read it to you as I'm turning there right now. A real, to me, uh, key verse in describing and defining the rest of God as found in the Old Testament book of the land or symbol of the land of Canaan. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, just by reason alone, the Apostle Paul here says, if a person is working, then what they get is their payment, their due. Right? But if a person is not working, then what they get is counted to them. It is something that is imputed to them, transferred into their account. It is pure grace. And so the land of promise is realizing it's not about me doing what I need to do in order to be blessed by God. But me believing what Jesus has done. So that I might be blessed by God. Why? Why does God uh, set it up that way? Well, I can tell you one reason for sure. There's more than one reason. But one reason is, guess who gets the glory? The one who deserves it. And that would be God and his son, Jesus. So under the precepts and the structure of the old covenant, God gets the glory and the person who met him halfway (laughs) or kept their part, they get the glory or the credit as well. And what's given to that person, therefore, is simply like a paycheck. But under the tenets under the core principle of the new covenant, the blessings and the goodness and the answered prayers that flow from God are based on what Jesus Christ has done and all one does to tie into that is belief. So that therefore God gets the credit and to the name of the Lord is the credit due alone. So the day of provocation, what really got God upset? <laughs> we, we read here in Hebrews, back to our text in Hebrews chapter three, God says, I swore in my wrath. What got God upset? Why did he swear in his wrath? that they would not enter into his rest, them not resting, them not trusting. Have you ever been in a a relationship like that where the other person just can't rest or trust? It's like you begin to wonder, why are we even in this relationship? Or maybe it's her child even. And you go, why can't you just settle down and trust me? And it becomes a, 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 can become a serious point of annoyance, to say the least. Well, that's how God says he felt on that day of provocation when the people of Israel didn't enter in. He says, I swore in my wrath. What gets God upset, so to speak, quote unquote, is this. It's not my so it's not my wandering away into the pleasures of this world or catering to my flesh. It's not in my altering the truth or in my um, thoughts that are less than stellar or pure. Those things are sin, and yet God is angry with those very much, but he placed his anger fully concerning those things on his son, Jesus, when Jesus died for our sins as our propitiation. So what God gets upset at is when I'm not trusting in that finished work of the cross and I'm not resting. So I can praise God or I can bless God with my lips, but my heart is going 100 miles per hour, so to speak, in trying to figure out how things are going to work. Or my mind is full of anxious thoughts trying to scheme or sort out how things are going to play out. Or maybe then depression sets in because in my own understanding, I don't see how anything will work out. Well, God says, oh, that irritates me. That you won't just rest, relax, get your eyes off of yourself and place them back on the finished work of the cross. Get your perspective straight again. Otherwise, you'll be failing to enter into my rest. And here's another reason why the land of Canaan, or what would later be called Israel, is really a land of rest. Because in it, the people that would, have the faith to step into the territory and believe that it was already taken would find rest from their enemies because they would recognize that they, they had everything they needed already. They wouldn't need to secure more territory for themselves. They wouldn't feel the need to take that other well Or that bigger field. They already had it. It was already there. It was coming to them. A land flowing with milk and honey. And when you rest in the finished work of the cross. Part of that rest comes from. Knowing that. You now have everything you need. It's coming to you. So you don't have to feel as though. You need to gain more. Get more. Make it happen more. In fact, you don't do any of those things. <laughs> and I think the reason that the land is not only enough, but more than enough, is not be- just because, not just because of the blessings physically or monetarily that are given, but also because even if they weren't, one realizes, one feels, one senses That one already has everything they need. And that's what grants them that more than enough. That's the power. That's the wealth. That's the beauty of the finished work of the cross.
2: Suffering, we never see the reward of suffering. Yeah. Starting, with starting with me, starting with me, starting with me, starting with me.
0: And that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah said about the coming Messiah that he would be bruised and chastised and afflicted but the reward of his suffering would be you and I that's amazing you are his reward he looked at that thief on the cross and said today you will be with me in paradise that was the first very first deposit that was being brought in the payment for his reward in the work that he was doing God loves you that much you are that valuable to him today may the Lord bless you as you remember that walking in that truth that God sees you as his inheritance that's amazing he loves you. He is for you. Who can be against you? Therefore, have an awesome weekend. See you at church. If that? You're, you're not going anywhere? Come out here. 10 o'clock. We'd love to see you here. Wonderful time of worship, scripture, communion, and burgers. Can't beat that. God bless.